Letter twenty one of Clarissa Harlowe, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Clarissa Harlowe, volume four by Samuel Richardson. Letter twenty one. Mr. Lovelace to John Belford, Esquire, Tuesday, May ninth. I am a very unhappy man. This lady is said to be one of the sweetest-tempered creatures in the world, and so I thought her, but to me she is one of the most perverse. I never was supposed to be an ill-natured mortal neither. How can it be? I imagined for a long while that we were born to make each other happy, but quite the contrary. We really seem to be sent to plague each other. I will write a comedy, I think. I have a title already, and that's half the work. The Quarrelsome Lovers. Twill do. There's something new and striking in it. Yet, more or less, all lovers quarrel. Old Terence has taken notice of that, and observes upon it. That lovers falling out occasions lovers falling in, and a better understanding, of course. Tis natural that it should be so. But with us we fall out so often, without falling in once. And a second quarrel so generally happens, before first is made up, that it is hard to guess what event our loves will be attended with. But perseverance is my glory, and patience my handmaid, when I have in view an object worthy of my attempts. What is there in an easy conquest? Hudibras questions well. What mad lover ever died to gain a soft and easy bride, or for a lady tender-hearted, in purling streams or hemp departed? But I will lead to the occasion of this preamble. I had been out. On my return, meeting Dorcas on the stairs. Your lady in her chamber, Dorcas? In the dining-room, sir and if ever you hope for an opportunity to come at a letter it must be now for at her feet i saw one lie which as may be seen by its open fold she had been reading with a little parcel of others she is now busied with all pulled out of her pocket as i believe so sir you'll know where to find them another time i was ready to leap for joy and instantly resolved to bring forward an expedient which i had held in petto and entering the dining-room with an air of transport i boldly clasped my arms about her as she sat she huddling up her papers in her handkerchief all the time, the dropped paper unseen. Oh, my dearest life! A lucky expedient have Mr. Mendel and I hit upon just now. In order to hasten Mrs. Fretchville to quit the house, I have agreed, if you approve of it, to entertain her cook, her housemaid, and two men-servants, about whom she was very solicitous, till you are provided to your mind. And, that no accommodations may be wanted, I have consented to take the household linen at an appraisement. I am to pay down five hundred pounds, and the remainder as soon as the bills can be looked up, and the amount of them adjusted. Thus will you have a charming house entirely ready to receive you. Some of the ladies of my family will soon be with you. They will not permit you long to suspend my happy day, and that nothing may be wanting to gratify your utmost punctilio. I will till then consent to stay here at Mrs. Sinclair's, while you reside at your new house, and leave the rest to your own generosity. Oh, my beloved creature, will not this be agreeable to you? I am sure it will, it must, and clasping her closer to me, I gave her a more fervent kiss than ever I had dared to give her before. I permitted not my ardour to overcome my discretion, however, for I took care to set my foot upon the letter, and scraped it further from her, as it were, behind her chair. She was in a passion at the liberty I took. Bowing low, I begged her pardon, and stooping still lower, in the same motion, took up the letter, and whipped it into my bosom. Pox on me for a puppy, a fool, a blockhead, a clumsy varlet, a mere Jack Belford. I thought myself a much cleverer fellow than I am. Why could I not have been followed in by Dorcas, who might have taken it up while I addressed her lady? 
for here, the letter being unfolded, I could not put it in my bosom without alarming her ears, as my sudden motion did her eyes. Up she flew in a moment. Traitor! Judas! Her eyes flashing lightning, and a perturbation in her eager countenance so charming. What have you taken up? And then, what for both my ears I durst not have done to her, she made no scruple to seize the stolen letter, though in my bosom. What was to be done on so palpable a detection? I clasped her hand, which had hold of the ravished paper, between mine. O oh, my beloved creature, said I, can you think I have not some curiosity? Is it possible you can be thus for ever employed, and I, loving narrative letter-writing above every other species of writing, and admiring your talent that way, should not, thus upon the dawn of my happiness, as I presume to hope, burn with a desire to be admitted into so sweet a correspondence? Let go my hand, stamping with her pretty foot. How dare you, sir! At this rate I see, too plainly I see, and more she could not say, but gasping was ready to faint with passion and affright, the devil a bit of her accustomed gentleness to be seen in her charming face, or to be heard in her musical voice. Having gone thus far, loath, very loath was I to lose my prize. Once more I got hold of the rumpled-up letter. Impudent man, were her words, stamping again. For God's sake, then it was. I let go my prize, lest she should faint away but had the pleasure first to find my hand within both hers, she trying to open my reluctant fingers. How near was my heart at that moment to my hand, throbbing to my fingers' ends, to be thus familiarly, although angrily, treated by the charm of my soul. When she had got it in her possession, she flew to the door. I threw myself in her way, shut it, and, in the humblest manner, besought her to forgive me. And yet do you think the hollow-hearted charmer, notwithstanding the agreeable enunciation I came in with, would forgive me? no truly but pushing me rudely from the door as if i had been nothing yet do i love to try so innocently to try her strength too she gained that force through passion which i had lost through fear out she shot to her own apartment thank my stars she could fly no further and as soon as she entered it in a passion still she double-locked and double-bolted herself in this my comfort on reflection that upon a greater offence it cannot be worse i retreated to my own apartment with my heart full and my man will not being near me gave myself a plaguy knock on the forehead with my double fist and now is my charmer shut up from me refusing to see me refusing her meals she resolves not to see me that's more never again if she can help it and in the mind she is in i hope she has said the dear creatures whenever they quarrel with their humble servants should always remember this saving clause that they may not be forsworn but thinkest thou that i will not make it the subject of one of my first plots to inform myself of the reason why all this commotion was necessary, on so slight an occasion as this would have been, were not the letters that passed between these ladies of a treasonable nature. Wednesday morning. No admission to breakfast any more than to supper. I wish this lady is not a simpleton after all. I have sent up in Captain Mennell's name. A message from Captain Mennell, madam. It won't do. She is of baby age. She cannot be a Solomon, I was going to say, in everything. Solomon Jack was the wisest man, but did ever hear who was the wisest woman? I want a comparison for this lady. Cunning women and witches we read of without number, but I fancy wisdom never entered into the character of a woman. It is not a requisite of the sex. Women indeed make better sovereigns than men. But why is that? Because the women's sovereigns are governed by men, the men's sovereigns by women, charming by my soul, for hence we guess at the rudder by which both are steered but to putting wisdom out of the question and to take cunning in that is to say to consider woman as a woman 
What shall we do if this lady has something extraordinary in her head? Repeated charges has she given to Wilson by a particular messenger to send any letter directed for her the moment it comes. I must keep a good look-out. She is not now afraid of her brother's plot. I shan't be at all surprised if Singleton calls upon Miss Howe, as the only person who knows, or is likely to know, where Miss Harlowe is, pretending to have affairs of importance, and of particular service to her, if he can but be admitted to her speech. Of compromise, who knows, from her brother. Then will Miss Howe warn her to keep close. Then will my protection be again necessary. This will do, I believe. Anything from Miss Howe must. Joseph Lehman is a vile fellow with her, and my implement. Joseph, honest Joseph, as I call him, may hang himself. I have played him off enough, and have very little further use for him. No need to wear one plot to the stumps, when I can find new ones every hour. Nor blame me for the use I make of my talents. Who that hath such will let him be idle. Well, then, I will find a singleton. That's all I have to do. Instantly find one. Will? Sir? This moment call me hither thy cousin Paul Wheatley, just come from sea, whom thou art recommending to my service, if I were to marry, and keep a pleasure-boat. Presto! Will's gone. Paul will be here presently. Presently to Mrs. Howe's. If Paul be Singleton's mate, coming from his captain, it will do as well as if it were Singleton himself. Sally, a little devil, often reproaches me with the slowness of my proceedings. But in a play does not the principal entertainment lie in the first four acts? Is not all in a manner over when you come to the fifth? And what a vulture of a man must he be who souses upon his prey, and in the same moment trusses and devours? But to own the truth I have overplotted myself. To make my work secure, as I thought, I have frighted the dear creature with the sight of my four hottentots, and I shall be a long time, I doubt, before I can recover my lost ground. And then this cursed family at Harlow Place have made her out of humour with me, with herself, and with all the world but Miss Howe, who, no doubt, is continually adding difficulties to my other difficulties. I am very unwilling to have recourse to measures which these demons below are continually urging me to take, because I am sure that, at last, I shall be brought to make her legally mine. One complete trial over, and I think I will do her noble justice. Well, Paul's gone, gone already, has all his lessons, a notable fellow. Lord W.'s necessary man was Paul before he went to sea, a more sensible rogue Paul than Joseph, not such a pretender to piety neither as the other. At what a price have I bought that Joseph! I believe I must punish the rascal at last, but must let him marry first, then, though that may be punishment enough, I shall punish to it once in the man and his wife, and how richly does Betty deserve punishment for her behaviour to my goddess! But now I hear the rusty hinges of my beloved's door give me creaking invitation. My heart creaks and throbs with respondent trepidations. Whimsical enough, though, for what relation has a lover's heart to a rusty pair of hinges? But they are the hinges that open and shut the door of my beloved's bedchamber, relation enough in that. I hear not the door shut again. I shall receive her commands, I hope, anon. What signifies her keeping me thus at a distance? She must be mine, let me do or offer what I will. Courage whenever I assume, all is over. For should she think of escaping from hence, whither can she fly to avoid me? Her parents will not receive her. Her uncles will not entertain her. Her beloved Norton is in their direction, and cannot. Miss Howe dare not. She has not one friend in town but me, is entirely a stranger to the town. And what then is the matter with me, that I should be thus unaccountably overawed and tyrannised over, by a dear creature who wants only to know how impossible it is that she should escape me, in order to be as humble to me 
as she is to her persecuting relations. Should I ever make the grand attempt and fail, and should she hate me for it, her hatred can be but temporary. She has already incurred the censure of the world. She must therefore choose to be mine, for the sake of soldering up her reputation in the eye of that impudent world. For who that knows me, and knows that she has been in my power, though but for twenty-four hours, will think her spotless as to fact, let her inclination be what it will. And then human nature is such a well-known rogue, that every man and woman judges by what each knows of him or herself. That inclination is no more to be trusted, where an opportunity is given, than I am, especially where a woman, young and blooming, loves a man well enough to go off with him, for such will be the world's construction in the present case. She calls her maid Dorcas, no doubt that I may hear her harmonious voice, and to give me an opportunity to pour out my soul at her feet, to renew all my vows, and to receive her pardon for the past offence, and then with what pleasure shall I begin upon a new score, and afterwards wipe out that, and begin another, and another, till the last offence passes, and there can be no other, and once after that to be forgiven, will be to be forgiven for ever. The door is again shut. Dorcas tells me that her lady denies to admit me to dine with her, a favour I had ordered the wench to beseech her to grant me, the next time she saw her. Not uncivilly, however, denies, coming to by degrees. Nothing but the last offence, the honest wench tells me, in the language of her principles below, will do with her. The last offence is meditating. Yet this vile recreant heart of mine plays me booty. But here I conclude, though the tyrannous leaves me nothing to do but to read, write, and fret. Subscription is formal between us. Besides, I am so much hers, that I cannot say how much I am thine or any other person's. End of letter 21